Um, David, I'm not sure. Uh, I can't really recall how much I said in the email. We just just to give you a real quick uh, background and context. Um, John and I were uh, we did a podcast or we have to call the um, Polybius conspiracy, which um, uh, went out in the world polarizing responses, but mostly was for us a, a successful Hey Todd, um, you're venture. Just so you know, sort of I'm not with, trying to interrupt Todd, but you're you're um, you're really breaking up pretty badly. Yeah, you're you're chopping. Huh. Interesting. Um okay. I'll uh <laughs> I'm in a pretty good spot. Um so I, I could try to call back on my phone and see if that maybe makes a difference. But I'm in yeah, you keep, you keep you keep um, breaking up. We keep. Am I still breaking up here? Oh yeah. Okay, yeah. Hold on. I'm in. Okay. 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 Cool. While you're doing that, I'll give David some context. Um, how you doing? Good. <laughs> Good. Hopefully, we can get that worked out. Uh, yeah. Anyway, as, as Todd was saying, um, uh, I guess we're not sure how familiar we are with, with our background, but we did this podcast called The Polybius Conspiracy. I guess it was about two years ago now it came out, uh, which looked at that urban legend uh, in the Portland area. And um, uh, basically one of the people who enjoyed the podcast uh, tweeted the Gizmodo article at Todd and said, you guys should really consider doing this as a, as another podcast. And, um, you know, we had noted in the article that Joseph said he was, you know, essentially done with Ong's hat and wanted to kind of put it to rest. And, uh, so we just very innocently wrote an email to him. Um, you know, just, we, we actually were not familiar with, uh, with Ong's hat. And so we sent him an email and, uh, just let him know that you know we we um, we were we were really fascinated with the story and there seemed to be a lot of parallels um, between kind of what we had experienced and and some of what he shared in that in that piece and uh, so anyway we 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 ended up just having a, a conversation with Joseph uh, on the phone um, I don't know we talked for like an hour hour and a half and it was you know purely as kind of creator to creator. Uh, with with no agenda to do anything further, and then it was some weeks later that he reached out to us and said that you know I, I've been thinking about it and uh, I really enjoyed you guys' podcast and I think I'd, I'd really like to kind of tell the quote unquote whole story of um, of Ong's hat to you guys uh, you know as a podcast. Would you guys be interested? And um, and I, I think he's working on a new mobile app. Uh, experience like a like an AR thing that um he wanted to kind of seed into it uh so that that was basically what started this whole process and then um and then we were just given sort of a list of uh of people who might be worth contacting given their you know experience with the story um so that's a little background about how we we kind of came to to reach out to you right so you guys hadn't heard of Ankh's Hat when you did your podcast thing? Yeah, incredibly, we had not, no. That, that's awesome. That's cool. Um, yeah, okay. just one of those things that uh, we just, you know, 
it escaped us somehow, um, slipped by. But uh, um, yeah, and then and then oh, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna, it's interesting that it then began using like similar techniques, like began to swim in the same water. I think that that's kind of one of the the lessons of the Ang's hat thing. You know, was the the techniques lead to results that are sometimes unexpected. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that there's like a real kinship with with Joseph as uh, you know as a storyteller, and um, we we just kind of really hit it off with him. So. You know, I, I guess it's, you know, akin to like, uh, I mean, I think we're probably ar- around the same age, um, y- you know, back in the 90s or something, you heard you heard someone else like that obscure band that you were also a fan of. And it was like, oh, no way. You know who this band is? And, and uh, you know, when when those sorts of things seem so much rarer. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, in any event, so so um, just so you're aware of how this would kind of fit in to the broader piece. Um, uh, where we're at now is Todd and I are, have, I think you're like the fourth interview that we're, that we've, that we're doing. Um, we did, we did have like about a six hour recorded interview with, with Joseph, which was pretty cool. Um, and uh, we, we have some idea of where, how we might end up shaping this, but um, it's still sort of in its infancy, the way that we tend to like to work and the way that we worked um, previously was we just kind of do all the interviews and, uh, and then see once we have the interviews, like what, what would be the best way to kind of tell, tell this um, story. And we, you know, we've been kind of tossing around ideas of doing, something similar to previous, which was, you know, I think that was seven episodes. We might, we might do like six half hour episodes or 20 minute episodes, but, but, you know, there's also the possibility that we're, we might do something a little different and do, you know, like one, two, hour, like a single two hour episode as well and, and just kind of do it that way. So the, the, the form and the structure will somewhat be suggested by what we end up getting um, as a result of these interviews. And then, Similarly, and, and, and to be candid, you know, we might also end up interjecting some fictional elements as well into the, into the, um, into the podcast the same way that we did with Polybius. But, um, you know, to be clear, in terms of all the, all the real subjects that we interview, we would, you know, we, we fully intend to use whatever interviews we're given as they are given within the context that they're given and, and not kind of like manipulating them or making them appear to be about things that they're not about. So I just wanted to be real clear about that as well. Right. Um, yeah, Joe had mentioned a little bit about that. So, yeah. Okay, cool. That's good. Cool. Um, Todd, how are how you feeling? You, you think, are you, are you able to hear everything and it's, it's working for you? Yeah, I can, I can hear you guys fine. As long oh, as this, is a mu- this is a much better signal. Cool, great. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll just uh, stay on my phone then. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I think that was a good overview. And, and hey, David, if that didn't come, uh, that wasn't uh, clear before, and nice to meet you, and thanks for participating. Yeah. Sure, yeah, thanks for the invite. This will be fun. Yeah, so, so David, just curious. Um, so I, I know that, um, or, or at least my understanding is liminal analytics has at least something, something to do with... Um, with Ong's hat or, or even like spiritually, is that, is that right? Could, could you sort of explain <laughs> more of what that is? Yeah, it's, um, 
I guess. So you you know you're familiar with the incunabula papers element of Onxhat. Yeah. Okay. So um, by the time that I got around to it all, it was more exposed as uh, you know a game and a kind of narrative and a fiction piece. Um, but the thing I found really interesting about it was its connections to actual researchers like Nick Herbert and, um, you know, even Joe himself to a certain extent. And so I kind of, uh, embraced the, (laughs) embraced the fictional narrative and, uh, use liminal analytics sort of as a vehicle for actually working with, uh, parapsychologists and, um, kind of the field of uh, consciousness studies, uh, fringe consciousness studies, I guess. Um, so it, yeah, I mean, in, in a sense that participating in the narrative that Matheny had kind of set up, I was able to tap into some of the real world elements of that, you know, some of the the papers that are cited in Ankh's hat and some of the researchers like Nick Herbert and the circle of scientists that he's kind of in. Um, you know, and with the, with the concept of, uh, playing it as a game, I guess, in some sense, but the game is almost a methodology, you know, so taking, taking the lessons of Ong's hat into the real world. So uh, to be clear, like when you discovered this, which, uh, from what we have read, that was in the nineties that you, that you first came upon this and, um, so this was so consciousness and 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 uh, sort of fringe ideas around that was something that was already appealing to you at the time that you stumbled across this. Yeah, I mean, my uh, you know, in college, I studied cognitive science and uh, religious studies in terms of folk ritual. So, <laughs> so I had a kind of an odd college experience. Um, and I've really since childhood been into this kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, Ankh's Hat and the Incunabula Papers and uh, Grey Lodge, which was another site that uh, Matheny had a hand in, uh, those sites were great resources on the early internet for, you know, information on weird stuff. You know, Ankh's Hat had the fictional elements to it, but, you know, like I said, with Incunabula Papers, it still tapped into some of the, the more real science elements of it and then also figures like William S. Burroughs and um, you know some of the the 90s like disinformation.com and that scene um, kind of the occulture scene of the 90s mm-hmm. it really mixed in with that you know and I've been able to to take that through liminal analytics and actually make use of it so would you mind uh, elaborating at all at, on how you first became interested in, in these sorts of ideas and concepts and, and, and sort of maybe what your own philosophy was as you were encountering the Incunabula papers and, and Ong's hat? Um, yeah, I mean, the, in terms of the, I actually uh, learned lucid dreaming through uh, one of the things referenced in Incunabula papers. It's a yoga a dream yoga manual, um, that they had referenced there. And I think, um, it was put up on Grey Lodge as a PDF you could download. Um, so I'd always been kind of interested in that stuff. I mean, I honestly think it was a lot of weird eighties television and those time life mysteries books and just a, a combination of that kind of stuff. Um, 
you know, I had, I had an interest in history when I was a kid um, and just read voraciously uh, and ended up kind of in the ritual, <laughs> ritual magic and uh, weird religions end of the end of the spectrum. So when I was online, you know, looking up stuff, uh, it would oftentimes hit on on resources that Metheny had set up that, you know, were loosely intermixed into the, the Angst hat or sometimes more tightly uh, mythos. You know, and then going forward, um, looking at, uh, you know, anomalous experiences and that kind of stuff, um, because Montauk, uh, you know, the Montauk mythos has become such a, a big influence on kind of the conspiracy culture. Uh, when you start looking at consciousness studies and the actual history of it in terms of science, you hit on the conspiracy culture and it mixes in all this stuff. And that was, you know, that was kind of the milieu that Metheny was in in Silicon Valley when he was making this. You know, it was a lot of these researchers that were were working on the fringes of the remote viewing projects and, and that kind of stuff. So it all kind of, you know, it blends together. I mean, in terms of early, early influences on me, um, I just, I read a lot, you know, so... Once I got into college and was studying uh, cognitive philosophy and, um, you know, religious studies and folk rituals and that kind of stuff, um, it really, that is all things that are completely prevalent in Ang's Hat. And I think that was part of the, you know, the mechanism of the, the gameplay or the narrative was just how deeply Metheny was able to embed this into different, you know, search strings and seed, seed it just across the net. So if you had any interest in these subjects, you know, Googling it or, you know, running a search engine on it would, would hit up against something that Metheny had, had seeded out there or had been seeded because of, you know, the narrative. Yeah, it was like a beacon to try to find like-minded individuals. Um, yeah, yeah. And that, you know, in terms of liminal analytics, uh, liminal analytics developed out of, um, you know, when I had to kind of take what I was learning professionally doing, you know, uh, digital marketing and stuff like that and apply it to my own interests. Um, I developed liminal analytics out of that. And it was when I was in conversation with, uh, Metheny outside of Ang's hat and that, you know, was, had developed more of a, a peer relationship. So, you know, liminal analytics sort of grew up out of that post Ang's hat period. Yeah. Um, what, where, if you don't mind asking, where did you grow up and where did you go to college? Uh, I grew up in the Chicago area until I was like seven. So right outside of Chicago in uh, River Grove. Um, and then uh, moved to Arizona for a little bit and then came back to the Chicago area, but uh, closer to Naperville or Wheaton, so about 40 minutes out of Chicago. Okay. Um, right by the, the National Labs, Fermilab and Argonne. Um, so that was kind of in the air where I was at. It was very tech heavy. And, uh, and then I went to college at a private college um, okay. in Elmhurst. So, yeah. And, um, you, I mean, it's interesting also just it, when we spoke to Joseph, he obviously said about himself, I am a ritual magician, and, and Ang's hat was a piece of ritual magic, in fact. And, and uh, you know, he referred to it as a sacred game, essentially. So, um, I mean, I think he sees kind of like everything that he's doing with it as an extension of all of that. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, I mean, the, the interesting thing about it is that, you know, he was, like, Nick Herbert's part, his his role in this whole thing is really interesting because he was, you know, Nick Herbert was in that fundamental physics group. And the, the group of people, the physicists that he was uh, around were, you know, government contracted uh, physicists and that. And then also, but right next to that are the folks developing the internet, you know, including Jacques Vallée and his, you know, UFO research and all that. And that's all intermixing in this kind of Silicon Valley area. And Joe's work comes out of, you know, kind of the, the counterculture storyteller and that kind of thing. But it's using these elements that are drawn directly from the like weird scene that the internet itself developed out of. You know, so Joe had this this strange place with that, uh, with the ritual element of it, where he's like sitting right at the nexus of where the internet's actually kind of spreading out from, you know, and and setting up this game almost at like the very heart of the the internet, you know. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because um, the, you know, you talked about kind of how uh, your interest. Um, kind of dovetails with the conspiracy milieu and, and there's a bunch of overlap there. And I think it's also interesting too because there, there are so many, um, uh, I think Joe said he's a big fan of Peter Lavanda and there's like that whole series of books about kind of like, uh, you know, political conspiracy and, and um, the intersection of ritual magic and, and uh and we had been speaking to, gosh, who was it? It was, um, oh, it was Denny Unger. And we were kind of talking about how, you know, this idea that, that what Joe did was in creating, you know, what was in essence the first ARG and using the internet. And, you know, he kind of sets up sort of the rules, I guess, or, this, or the narrative structure, but then there's this element of co-creation that happens as, as each participant brings his or herself, um, to, you know, to the story and inter interacts with it. And, um, I, I guess one of the theories that came out late, late in the game was that this idea that, you know, it was actually Joe was sort of like the, um, uh, doing this, uh, perhaps in concert with, the government as a way to test out the ability to use the internet as a tool of mind control and reality manipulation. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, and that's the interesting, the interesting element of it. Cause I mean, so all the tests that would have been necessary for that were already completed in like the seventies. If you read the, if you read the internet, um, like the early papers on the internet, it was, it was considered, uh, I forget the, the ARPANET, name for the ARPANET was something like enhanced human cognition or something like that. And that was the, the kind of header for the project. So it was, uh, it was a cybernetic extension of, you know, humans ability to communicate with each other and organize each other. So all those, the ideas of, uh, you know, using narrative to, to kind of shape things and do that, um, that was already inherent in the architecture. You know, so it's it's interesting to see that because, I mean, you start to see I think that's one of the, the weird things about having seen this thing kind of grow up and emerge is you see how the conspiracy narrative can sit over this reality that is out of anyone's control. 
you know, the, 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 the fact that these narratives would go out on these systems and kind of cause these belief structures to change. Um, there's a guy, Walter Lippmann. He was the, the founder of the New Republic. And he had a term for it um, in the 20s called uh, pseudo-environments. Pseudo and they were an environment created by the news or by media that created a worldview which a, a person lived within and reacted within. But it was a pseudo-environment in the sense that it was completely sculpted by the, the media narration. You know, and this is an idea that comes in the 20s when you've got the development of PR and, and the rest of that. So um, all this stuff is already inherent. And with the Internet and the web, we just, you know, it's been amped up by the architecture. Um, Joe stumbled on it through this ritual work and this stuff and being, you know, with these different researchers. But the, the level of accident there is, is almost kind of scary. You know, the, yeah. the kind of random, the random element that just comes out with playing with this stuff, you know, um, it's kind of, it's kind of unnerving. Uh, are you, are you interested in, um, in, uh, uh, Adam Curtis's, uh, documentary work and ha had you seen the century of the self about Edward Bernays and all that? Yeah, I've seen clips of it. Yeah, yeah. definitely interested. I, my actually watching stuff is hit or miss. So got it consciousness studies <laughs> yeah like, yeah um so so D david you said that you um your your point of entry with this when you first learned about Aung Sat, um you only ever saw it as as a game correct you never sort of got uh swooped up and and wondering whether or not what was happening what, what was real or not correct Right. Yeah. And well, and that, you know, but when you, when I came on it like that, the, the, the weird thing for me is it's become real in the way that, you know, I think that you're describing with Methania and the occult ritual and, and kind of that reaction to it. So knowing it was a game made it far weirder to see where it, you know, where, <laughs> where not only people's beliefs in it and their reactions and how it, that entered the, the narrative, you know, um, but also seeing how the game elements, because, there was a certain level of, um, yeah, that, that mystery of, of how deep does this go? Where exactly is the, you know, it may be a game, but who designed it? Like, what's the purpose and that kind of stuff? Those, those questions still kind of hovered there, you know? So can you... And when, and when did you oh, first... Um, go ahead. Oh, so, sorry, John. You, go ahead. Well, I was going to just ask if you can elaborate on what it was about your point of entry that made it clear that it was already a work of fiction. Um, I think it was the way that I came in on it was, uh, more as a creator. So it depended on where you entered. It was, uh, the way that the way the internet was kind of arranged at the time, you had all these different message boards. It wasn't quite as fluid as it is today. Um, so you had all these different message boards, which obviously covered niche kind of areas. And so depending on where you entered in from, you would get a different perspective. So if you entered it on like a conspiracy chat, you might get a more, this isn't a game or, you know, more ambiguity there. I entered it through um, kind of the message boards where writers and artists and, uh, you know, folks that were interested in the research of, of consciousness studies and the occult and that kind of thing came in on it. And that was a little bit more... Uh, open book as opposed to um 
the the kind of fictional end of it on the outside of that if that makes sense yeah um, yeah were those were the, were the people on the on the forums essentially like deconstructing it or saying hey here's this really cool well some I don't of them know. knew some of them knew joe <laughs> like ah, some okay. of them, yeah i mean some of it it was it was more of a more of an insider an insider look at that you know um and again it depended on where you came in on it from so because everything was so there was a there was a barrier to entry back then, you know. So um, it wasn't you know it wasn't the social mediated world that we know now. So there was a little bit more of a barrier of entry, and uh, there was also less spread. So you know a lot of the folks that were into the occult and doing that were also in LA, right? Like or they were where <laughs> they were where Joe was, or they were in Chicago, or they had you know they had been out there. So it was like it was it was more scene oriented. Uh, and folks who were doing stuff would be on if that you know if that makes like boing boing and that kind of thing you know like writers for boing boing and and that so yeah that makes sense and and what were some of the the I guess some of the conversations that from from this vantage point that people were having um, who who you got to observe I mean was it was it was it like you of, of was it of interest or like admiration or or just um, like I I know from like the other like people who really got into fiction of it became you know quite obsessed with it and went down a rabbit hole. But since you were somewhat distanced from from that, I'm just sort of curious what what some of those conversations around Ong's hat was like. Well, some people thought it was totally shady. You know, um, some people I I think. You know, there was a mix of appreciation for, like, the art of it, but it was also because it was such a new way of looking at media and uh, the web. Um, you know, there was, this isn't, the same kind of stuff you'd see with, like, a comic or something like that. You know, like, this isn't real literature, or this isn't really the way to do storytelling, or this is manipulative. Um, all questions which come out now as we see the effects of fake news and, and conspiracy culture and that kind of stuff. Um, that was all kind of brewing in the, the kind of back end look at it, you know. And then also, I, you know, at the time too, then there was it was kind of moving into the John Teeter hoaxing and that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of people that were. Um, it gets pretty heated, you know. And then also with the mix of you know within that that kind of milieu is still folks that are trying to do research, and so. You know, if you get like somebody who's really into UFOs and this starts to blend in with like misinformation on UFOs, people get pissed at that. You know, it's like muddying the water of an already muddy uh, stream, you know. And, and did you have similar feelings about that as far as, um, I mean, as far as some of the negativity where, where people felt that it was manipulative or, I mean, kind of where, where did you fall? No, I mean, I explore some of the ideas. Yeah, I had a kind of weird perspective on it just because of coming from the ritual studies and the cognitive philosophy. I thought it was a fascinating uh, machine. You know, I thought it was a really, really incredible way to um, utilize the technology as a not only as a storytelling device, but also um, as kind of an initiatory machine. And I thought that the fictional elements and that and the hoaxed elements um, were if anything, they were like puzzles, you know, that you had to kind of work your way through. Uh, and doing that, it actually helped people 
become more aware of what narratives can do and what narratives on this technological platform can do. I thought it was a great learning experience, you know. Um, and I think especially once Joe became a little bit more open about what it was that Angstat had been and tried to get more explanatory with it, um, it, you know, highlighted that aspect of it as almost like an, uh, you know, like a, a antidote to the, the issues, you know, having people be critically aware, be aware of where your narratives come from, you know, be aware of how information travels, what, how it can be packaged. You know, how you can have a whole bunch of truth around it, like the Incannabula papers, you can have legit books and then sneak in a fictional book with the description of it, and that can have an effect, you know. So these different ways that information can travel and how narratives can be affected by that. And it really, to me, it was a, a critical thinking exercise, you know. And as such would be kind of like a very prescient about, you know, like you had said, where... Um, online culture has sort of ended up, uh, you know, um, I guess what would you say you, you, it sounded like you took away a lot of actual real practical um, elements that you could incorporate in your research and in, in your study. Um, is there anything in particular that you, that you garnered from this that you, or that you gleaned from it that, that has stayed with you? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the hoax element, being able to see through that, and then the, I mean, it's so complex. Like, it's really, you know, he set up uh, the narrative itself, you know, provides lessons, but there's also the way he set up the game with this net, uh, network of creatives operating semi-autonomously, you know, and carrying this network, carrying the narrative through the network, through these different, you know, um, media pieces and, and the way that, like, an email can be uh, a tool of a narrative, you know, something as simple as an email or a post, as opposed to thinking of an article or, uh, you know, <laughs> planting an article. <coughs> the idea of simply doing a post or a comment and having, you know, being able to use hypertext and all that. So, um you know, a takeaway really was a map of the narrative machine that is the web, you know, and then also uh, meeting people through folks who are interested in it, uh, conversations in that, it really set up a, a kind of invisible college of people that, you know, know each other and communicated and published together and that kind of thing too. So there was actually, you know, actively an artistic and creative community that, that was involved with it as well. Wow. Well, and as far as what you observed about the people who were really kind of believing it or, or wanting to believe it and, and looking for the truth, what were some of your observations there? If there, especially if there's anything, um, uh, you know, that you can elaborate on or anything that's, that, that stuck out at you, to you. Uh, is very similar to the QAnon stuff today, you know, um, the, there's a Italian performance magician, uh, um, oh, his name's escaping me, but he wrote about, uh, he wrote about, he did the design for René Le Chateau, which is, um, the Priory of Zion, and, you know, it goes into this, there's a, a big conspiracy 
narrative around René Le Chateau, and it, he analyzed it as what he called uh, an infinite game. And so it's these games that are played through finding more evidence and more connections of these different parts. And everybody playing it, you know, has the central theme, you know, Ankh's hat, a place, uh, René Le Chateau, this focus point, and kind of a narrative focus, narrative elements. And then everybody plays their pieces kind of like a, like a class game sort of thing. Um, could, you, could you repeat that last and, part real quick? You broke up. Everyone plays oh, their sure. pieces. Everybody, you know, sort of like a like the glass speed game by Herman Hesse, you know, and the uh, the idea of you have these different elements that you put into play, and then the narrative kind of fuses around them, and the better elements are the ones that better fuse with the narrative that can move forward and continue the game, you know. And uh, for some reason, some people's psychology just hits on that. And um, the way I think of it now is uh, it's kind of strange, but in terms of the, you know, the web architecture initially being designed as kind of like a cybernetic input-output um, device, uh, the people that get most immersed in the game seem most uh, susceptible to that cybernetic <laughs> action where they they output a little bit too much to the the digital architecture, you know, of the narrative and the way that these different information pieces kind of form together, you know, and then they act on it. Like the folks that showed up at Metheny's doorstep, you know. Did you and Joe actually start, uh, when did you guys actually start corresponding directly? Uh, 2009 about. So this was long after the game had concluded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of, do you recall uh, the moment at which he announced the end of the game and, and kind of your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was part of the, the sort of narrative of that time and the, the culture, you know, so it was a big deal that he had announced the end of it folks had you know started to kind of know it at that point and i think when he did announce it it was also under the auspices of it having gotten to people showing up at his door you know so it was um it was a weird feeling you know there's been these weird moments in that history like if you've depending on how long you've been on the web uh where reality starts to poke in you know, like the um, the first people to die, right? Like when pe people get all on Twitter and all that, there was actually a, a bunch of media around, you know, the first people who were public and then started to die and their Twitter feed's still alive, you know? Um, and I think that that, when Joe called the, the big quits on it, uh, it had been one of those points of like reality of, you know, what these narratives can do, you know, people, and, you know, plus the, you had started to see more increase in, in terrorism and conspiracy culture had started to kind of turn weird, you know, you had Alex Jones coming up and uh, that kind of stuff. So there was a much, there was a darker tone to it, you know, and more of a, uh, that kind of sealed that, that moment. Do you think that there was something about, um, people who are either, you know, mentally unbalanced or paranoid and, and the way that they kind of 
gravitate toward conspiracy that um, those narratives would get grafted on top of Ong's hat? Oh, definitely. I mean, you had the 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 element of the Montauk kind of blending into it, you know, and so you've got this whole uh, kind of like hollow earth people being abducted and experimented on and uh, bunkers and stuff like that. Um, you know, it definitely played into that kind of stuff eventually. You know, and that was the thing too, was the, the looseness of the narrative. It, it hooked on to other things, you know, and it hooked on to stuff that was, was tangential as people started, you know, playing the infinite game and adding their own pieces and that. So it definitely hooked into that, that kind of thing, you know. And that's, that's something, though, that um, there's Arthur Mackin and the Angel of Mons, which is a famous uh, thing from the World War I where Arthur Mackin writes a short story about this uh, battle where uh, Archangel Michael comes in and, you know, inspires the British forces or whatever. And um, that gets published as a piece of fiction and all these soldiers start to write in and say it actually happened, you know. Um, and so then you get this weird moment where Arthur Mackin's saying, no, I wrote that as a fiction. And you've got people saying, well, it actually happened. So, you know, there actually was this angelic vision at the battle scene in that. So this kind of history of like the media and reality mixing in a weird way and people's perceptions in that is, it's a long history. It got really amped up with the, the web, you know, and Joe definitely hit a button with that. Yeah. I, I remember that story well from, um, <laughs> uh, just, I haven't heard it in a while, but the, uh, but I remember that well, cause the first place I had worked, um, which was a movie studio out of college had, uh, was trying to develop, develop that idea into a feature film narrative. So I don't know. Oh, wow. Never, never happened. Never happened. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, I just always remember that and always thought that was a, a really cool idea. Um, I mean, a great, and a great story, ultimately. Um, I, I'm curious with, with Joe, when you, I'm just curious what your impression was or your initial impression, and maybe, maybe your impression now uh, as, as well. When we talked to Ben Younger, you know, he, he said that, and, and you might have a very different experience, but he said, you know, Joe to him was very much, uh, in some ways, you know, an, an enigma where he disappeared for years and he'd somewhat like change his identity or go radio silent and, and come back um, and with like you know, new stories and almost like a reimagined version of himself. Um, I, have you had similar experiences with, with Joe? Is, is it, um, I think I do that, too. So I don't know. I think I probably am a little bit uh, <laughs> forgiving of that. Because I do the same kind of stuff. Um, I moved down to Georgia and ended up gone for like three years or so off the internet just because of bad connectivity and living in a rural area. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I never, he does disappear, but I'm disappeared at that same, you know, in those, <laughs> those same moments. So uh, I just... Um, accept that as the, the way of life of somebody that looks deeply into these areas. I don't know. You know, kind of like Gandalf, right? Like, disappears for a while and, like, shows up with an adventure, you know? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, what, were, what were the circumstances yeah. under which you guys actually connected? Uh, Twitter, I think. You know, I'd, I'd 
known his work and like the message boards and kind of paralleled it and all that. And then I signed on to Twitter and he was one of the first people that I connected with. And we started uh, just talking because um, I was doing professionally, I was doing digital media stuff. So plus having the, the prior experience and that with his work. So we just connected through that. Oh, yeah, and we've got he, oh, go mutual ahead. friends. Oh, we have mutual friends and stuff like that. So, I think he had told us that he was like Twitter user number sixty or or something along those lines. So, yeah, he was right on it. You know, yeah. and I was at that moment in my career, I was trying to decide like, do I just do straight digital media business corporate stuff, or do I try to like embrace the the weirdness? And so. Joe was an inspiration to embrace the weirdness, at least partially. Cool. Todd, you had a question? Sorry. I, I... Oh, I, I, was, um, I was just wondering, and, and, and I mean, also want to preface this by saying that, like, John and I spent a weekend with Joe, and, and I think he's awesome, and of course we're collaborating on this project together. Um, you know, but as far as, um, you know, him just sort of, like, talking about, Onks had or other stories. I mean, is he a person you you feel that like? I don't know. Like t- tells a lot of like tall tales in a way, or, or or things that you're not sure whether they're whether they're real or not, or not. Or is he a pretty straight shooter in, in your eyes? Uh, I would say he's a straight shooter, but at the same time, like this is a very weird milieu. <laughs> like the thing the thing is is that. Um, the Nick Herbert end of things is a weird place to be. And uh, reality gets malleable, you know? So um, to me, he's a straight shooter, but I think we live in a similar space. So I don't, and I don't really know how to describe that. Um, You know, it's like, uh, are you guys familiar with Whitley Strieber at all? Only from, like, communion and and that sort of stuff. Okay, right. So, like, it's kind of weird. Like, you hear him, like, you know what communion is, right? Like, his abduction tale and all that. So, did that actually happen, right? Like, we don't know because we're not him and he may not even know. And so, um, is it true in the sense that, you know, you can get in your car and drive it true? I don't know. You know, but is it true in the sense that Whitley believes it? I think so, you know. Um, And I don't think Joe goes that far with it, but things get weird. Like, stuff gets weird when you work with this, this, uh, (laughs) when you you use the web in in strange ways, uh, strange things happen, you know. So, I'm not trying to avoid the question, I just... uh, I know that I could I could say stories from my experience, you know, in these areas that would sound not true. You know what I mean? Would so. you be Would you be okay with sharing some of those? I mean, I think what where where I'm going with that question was we had heard from you know almost everybody that we've spoken to about the synchronicities that began happening to them as they were, um, you know, following this narrative, and and I don't know if you're alluding to similar experiences or not, but. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. with, with this and then also, I mean, because 
Oh yeah, I don't know. This this whole area is just weird. It taps into a weird space, weird science that that does weird stuff. Um, yeah, one of the synchronicities that happened specifically with Joe, um, we had been talking about a project with some folks, and um, I was I called a cab to get to work, and the day was just going like horribly. Like it would like I, I'd woken up late. Like it was just bad. Like it was hot. It was just everything about the day was like wrong you know and this fly like kept buzzing me like just would not leave me alone and it was it was just one of those experiences that seemed so like described it sounds normal but there was like a feeling to it that was just like this is a bad day this fly is bad everything about this is bad so the cab comes late and i get in and it's cab number 666 and I kid you not, the guy's name was something like Lou Safer or something like that. Like, seriously. Like, and I was like, what? <laughs> this is not right. Like, this is completely absurd. And so after that happened, I sent an email to Joe and I was like, Joe, like, because he was the only person that I could think of that would even, you know, like would conscience this as a serious question because I was seriously disturbed. Like, that was just wrong you know, cab number 666 should not have, like, Lou, like, safer driving it, you know, like, that's not right, and so I sent him an email, and I was like, what's going on, like, what, like, you know, what What do you do in these situations, and he was like, yeah, you just got to ride through it, like, you just got to, you just got to take it, you know, like, it'll, it'll be fine, and I was like, are you sure, because it's kind of ominous, you know, and he was like, no, it's just a weird, a weird glitch, just keep going, um, so, you know, and then that's kind of like the, the idea of, I don't know, Joe's, yeah, I've, I've heard some of, you know, Joe's experiences in that. And it's, it's along the same lines of, it sounds stupid, you know, even the, even the stupidity of 666 and safer or whatever, like, that's dumb. Like, that's a dumb coincidence. Like, that's a bad B movie, like Satan movie, you know, that's totally. not, that's not even well written, you know, so, um, yeah, I don't know. It gets it gets weird like that, and it gets it gets aggressively weird like that. You know, I, I, if you have any other stories that you'd love to share, that you'd like to share, we'd love to hear them. But I do want to kind of ask you a, then a weird question as well, as a result of of what you shared is like, and I'm not even sure how to how to um, phrase it appropriately, but I, but essentially, like, do you on some level then feel like there are kind of these moments where, um, you know, we could say the matrix reveals itself or you start to see kind of like the narrative thread or it starts to break down in some way. Like, do, do you understand what I'm trying to get at with these yeah. sorts of questions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, there's folks looking into that. I don't know. Um, there's a guy, Riz Verk, that has a new book out, Simulation Hypothesis. He's a MIT uh, game developer um, and a like a venture capitalist entrepreneur guy. Um, he's done a really good job of kind of looking at those theories. I you know I don't know. It, it's very strange. Like if you you know it, the more of those experiences that you have, I think the more the more that possibility becomes kind of uh, prevalent. You know, um, I'm not. I wouldn't say that I necessarily like think it's definitely that but they're you know whatever the glitch is glitches are real you know yeah um so were there any other experiences or synchronicities that you want to share that you can recall 
I mean, it's been a long string of, of that kind of stuff. We, uh, I don't know. I can't think of anything in particular related to Joe. And okay. honestly, like since getting, I mean, really it's, it's the, the looking at the, the web in this way and kind of dealing with these narratives. There's something, uh, I know the Jeff Kripal, who's a, a religious studies professor at Rice University, uh, he describes it as, you know, these areas are radioactive. And when you have like a religious belief system or something, they create different uh, rituals and ways of looking at it and narratives that kind of in-house that radioactivity, you know. But when you get out into the wild with it, like Joe did, um, or when you look into stuff, you know, without those kind of boundaries, uh, it gets strange, you know. Mutations happen. Is this also this idea of this sort of collective energy that everyone who is participating in this narrative is sort of bringing to it? Uh, you know, mm. I, I guess that's to kind of um, piggyback on your, your statement about how a religious in, uh, structure or belief can sort of create a framework that contains that energy. But, you know, in, in this sort of a situation where it's... Um, you know, as you had said, so loose and open and, and allows people uh, to bring things that might even be, you know, really, really tangential and, and, and still find a way to try to thread it in. Um, is there is, is, is this idea that it ends up kind of creating this chaotic energy? Is that uh, yeah, seems, something that resonates that, with you? Yeah, it seems like that. You know, I mean, there's something like the uh, the Rosicrucian hoax, right? Like the the Rosicrucian manifestos in the uh, the 16th century, and then those get published, and you have a long line of Rosicrucian organizations from what essentially was just like a pamphlet hoax, you know, a utopian uh, a utopian um, story, you know. But then those those groups that grow out, they end up having political influence. They end up having scientific influence. They end up influencing all sorts of cultural things. Um, you know, and Ang's hat kind of carries that mantle, you know, of of accessing that, you know. And I think it does have something to do with, yeah, this, this kind of interactive uh, narration and the, the, you know, whatever networks are formed in that you know but there's this whole i mean when it when it enters your life though in like a weird kind of synchronistic way or coincidental way that that gets a little bit weirder you know i mean i think that's one of the things that gets really strange with this if you have these kind of synchronistic experiences to the point where it's like you start to question is this a coincidence or not you know what is that like how does like how does the how does the narrative, you know, thing that you know is fake suddenly become a physical reality and that you're interacting with through coincidence? You know, that's that's a weird question. I don't you know. What is that transfer mechanism? I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm curious, too, to what extent you think there's any validity to. Uh, I mean, you had said that obviously there are some real books that are cited in in uh, in the game, interspersed with uh, fictional works, but also in terms of the the history and the and the backstory of the game, 
to what extent you think there's any validity to um, to that narrative? Uh, maybe in like a mythopoetic sense, you know. I mean, they're the like Nick Herbert in that definitely experiments with uh, quantum meditation and the idea of time travel and the idea of uh, being able to um, access different levels of reality in that, you know, and that does within the human potential movement um, where he kind of interacts with that philosophy. Uh, that's definitely there, you know, um, you've got stuff like there was a, there was an article that just came out, I think on sci-fi.com that was about stranger things, the latest season and how some of the stuff uh, paralleled Soviet experiments um, during the Cold War. Um, you know, and you've got stuff like with the idea of the, the egg and that, um, like the Monroe Institute with their binaural technology to induce out-of-body experiences, which was um, the Monroe Institute worked with some of the folks at the uh, doing the government remote viewing project. Um, you know, so there's parallels there uh, kind of mythopoetically, you know, in terms of the actual narrative itself, like, I don't, you know, it's, it's a mix match. It's a, it's a, a collage of different influences, you know? Yeah. Um, I guess, do you think that, uh, that Ong's hat and, um, and or Joe will like, is there a kind of a legacy that you think will endure uh, as a result of of Ong's hat having been uh, entered into the consciousness? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely shaped. When I saw Stranger Things, you know, I immediately sent it to Joe with, with you know, they're making an Ong's hat, uh, an, an Ong's hat derivative thing. And it turns out that they actually, the, the Duffer Brothers' initial project was called Montauk. It actually was about the Montauk project. Um, so, you know, I think it, from having been around it so long, I see it in culture all the time, you know, and then as conspiracy, like the QAnon stuff, and as that, that breaks out, like there's always little things that sneak in, um, or with the UFO stuff that has been hitting the news lately, um, the Montauk project kind of sneaks around the background and, uh, Ankh's hat sort of lurks there as well. So, you know, I think it has this definite like shadow influence on, on things that will, will definitely remain. Um, do you also, think anything oh, happens yeah. with the, yeah, do, do you think that anything happens with this legacy once, I mean, Joe said to us that this is sort of, uh, well, it seems like this is going to be like the last thing he wants to say on it before moving on. And yet he was already sort of at this point before. And I think, cause there's been some renewed interest. He's like, Oh, well, maybe there's a little more story to tell. I mean, do you feel that Ong's hat is just sort of, is, uh, do, you, do you feel that the story is complete, sort of, I guess, once Joe decides to remove himself from it completely, or is, are there elements of of this story in particular, not just from, like, an influence, but, like, focusing on Ong's hat, that, like, a torch that someone else could carry with it? Does that make sense? Um... I think it'll, you know, I think it's going to play itself out in the way it plays itself out. I don't know that in terms of, uh, like, a sequel or something like that, or, you know, I don't think it works that way. 
you know, and in terms of like a legacy in a, in a mediated sense, I don't think it really works that way. It's gone beyond that. You know, it's, it's entered a different kind of, kind of layer of, uh, the media space, you know, it's very much driven by Joe, um, in the telling, you know, so there's, while, while these other elements kind of come out from the, the media object itself, the heart of it really is Joe, you know, so if Joe stops telling the story, I think it'll, it'll have its place, but it won't continue to be a, a mediated thing. You know, media yeah, that, that seems to be sort of the, yeah, I mean, you're, you're saying um, what everyone else has said, too, that it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of, um, it, it's Joe's thing, and it just, it just really just doesn't exist without him, so. Yeah. Um, mm. I, I, just one quick follow-up question about when you, when you discovered the game, although you knew that it was a work of fiction, how deep did you get into trying to, um, you know, solve the game? Like, how, how aggressively were you playing the game versus kind of just looking at it as this piece of art or, uh, you know, piece of storytelling? I definitely looked at the, the pieces and, like, uh, you know, dug into the history of the different spots. It, <coughs> it kind of teaches you a way of looking at the world, you know? Uh, Mike Kinsella's Legend Tripping book kind of highlights that, um, it gave a framework for, you know, making ghost hunting or something like that a little bit more interesting, you know, digging into the deep stories, like what are the, what are the weird, you know, I lived, when I grew up, uh, I lived like right in the shadow of the national labs, you know, so like the, the elements of like this, this weird kind of offshoot science and, and that kind of thing. Um, there were, you know, cause Joe was writing from that culture, um, there were elements there that were true um, and that kind of bridged out. So I used it almost like, let's look at, okay, this is, here's this part of the game. Let's dig into this a little bit and see how these pieces fit within the narrative and then look at where I'm at and how do these pieces kind of fit within the narrative, you know? Um, and, and having a, a deeper respect for, kind of like a genius loci, like a spirit of place and how you can weave a narrative around something like Ankh's hat, you know, a, a real place with a real history and, and kind of tap into that and almost use it like a narrative battery, you know? So I was very interested in the different moving parts of the, of the story and the narration uh, in that sense, if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank so, you. I'm very, I'm very like, when I was a kid, like I read encyclopedias, so so I'm very, I'm very mechanical with this stuff, you know, especially with the the media end of it. So I've always been approaching it, uh, kind of like a mechanic, you know, how does this work? What is this doing? Um, you know, and then once I got a little bit more matured into the the consciousness studies research end of things, um, how does how do these lessons kind of bridge into that? How does these lessons actually bridge into the way narratives affect us and the way that, you know, what does that mean um, functionally and in an in applied sense? Uh, can I ask you then just, for, you know, in terms of where your work has taken you, uh, I, I guess, any hopeful uh, conclusions and, and any warnings that you would um, 
issue as a result of, you know, a kind of a culmination of all of this? Uh not real hopeful in the sense of like the fake news stuff and all of that like these pseudo environments are strong and strange you know um and the the control that that joe did have over Ang's hat isn't available anymore uh with the speed of social media so as out of control as it got um he had a little bit more control over things than we have now so, um, you know, I, more warnings of just pay attention, you know, and to <laughs> don't, don't get led into the, you know, the, the strange alternate dimensions that are, that are offered, you know, by, by media narration. It's a, it's a wonderful tool if you can look at it and, and see how it works and that I think it's a wonderful storytelling tool. Um, and if, we have storytellers that can use those tools in a way that's, uh, you know, healthy for the society. That would be amazing. Um, unfortunately, I think commercial interests and, uh, and that kind of thing have most of the, the play, you know? Yeah. Todd. Um, I guess the other one other question that that we should ask and has have you heard from Joe about a guy named Cameron? Yeah, uh, I don't know what to say about Cameron. Cameron might be a kind of warning too. You know, um, I think Cameron went to a dark place. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that at all? Uh, well, I, we talked a lot about what happens when you get involved in these areas. Um, some synchronicities are benign and some uh, kind of cross that liminal edge. You know, you step over the borderline. Um, researcher friend of mine, uh, George Hansen, specializes in the trickster elements of uh, anomalous phenomena. And the way he describes it is uh, crossing the enchanted boundary. Um, and it's, it's kind of uh, a fear that a lot of folks that uh, look into this stuff, they've definitely got to keep their eye on that enchanted boundary. Because if you step over, uh, things can get very weird. And, and, you, and you, so you're essentially saying that Cameron is somebody who stepped over that boundary? From what I've heard. Yeah, I think he he definitely uh, may have slipped the veil a little bit. And and had Joe shared a website, his website with you, or are you familiar with his website? Yeah, I looked at it briefly, um, very briefly. A anything that you took away from just your cursory look at it? It would be something to keep an eye on. Um, I mean if folks are, are willing to kind of explore these areas, I think uh, that would be the first place that they could uh, kind of start to, to get a better idea of what this is all about, what we've been talking about here. Do you know any, any way of actually getting in contact with Cameron? I haven't. I would have to ask Joe. I've, once Joe started talking about him, I kind of I kept my, uh, my distance on that one. 
Got it. Um, well, I think that's it for me. Todd, do you have anything you want to add? No, I think that's it um, as well. I mean, we definitely appreciate you speaking with us. Um, just to let you know kind of what happens from here. Um, we, were, we were sort of eyeing um, potentially getting this done in the fall. I'm not sure. We sort of feel like that's going to have to be pushed back. Um, just with the um, amount of story there is to tell and trying to kind of figure out how the best way to tell it. Um, but uh, we definitely will will keep you posted and let you know how this thing evolves and when it's going to get released and, and how and, and um, definitely appreciate you being a part of it. So yeah. thanks so much thanks. for speaking with us. Yeah, yeah thanks but, for being so generous with your time. Yeah, sorry if I was vague. Like, it's very hard for me to, like... Um, it really got weird. Like it got strange. Cause you know, I, I do, I'm the editor in chief for a parapsychological journal in that. So I actually do, you know, semi-professionally work in parapsychology, which deals with, you know, psychism and that kind of stuff. And all of that was more on the fictional element of Ang's hat, but like I work with it real. It's just, it's a very strange kind of journey for me, you know? In, t- in terms of how a, a fictional piece and your your real professional life ha- had this had an overlap, or yeah, well, in the sense that like the fictional elements of Ang's hat like are real to me now, you know, like the uh, you know there's the the global consciousness project, right? I mean, there's there's all sorts of parallels in the real world, like the the Monroe Institute and oral beats and their out of body experience and stuff. Um, that resonate with the the more fictional elements in Ong's hat. So for me, it's strange. You know, I think, I don't know that a lot of people have that, that experience with it. They may have weird synchronicities and stuff, but it's weird for me to kind of see almost this mythology piece that's based on a real world that people don't really get access to, you know? Right. And you, and you find applicable. Yeah. It's totally applicable to like what I do, you know? Um, it's just, it's very strange for me. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much, David. And um, Yeah, thanks. Yeah, as Todd said, we'll be in touch. Great. I'm looking forward to it. And one quick question on your process. So you just take all these things and kind of like meditate on all this, and then you're going to chop it up into into narrative? Like, how does that work? That seems daunting. Yeah. <laughs> <We're>, um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess we're, where we're at right now is just trying to do the research and try to understand sort of the scope of of, of the Ong's Hat story and the individual players and, um, and uh, I mean, some of the questions uh, that, uh, that have been brought up and some of the answers that our various um, uh, interviewees may or may not have. But it's, it's uh, I, yeah, I guess like right now we're just trying to kind of learn as much as possible and then John and I will... Um, uh, speak and try to collaborate to, to find like the best way to tell the story. And then now that we're working with, with Joe on this, we'll sort of present a few avenues to him and see what he, he really sparks to, and then see what makes the most sense of how to build it out. As John said, it might be like multi episodes or, or it just might be like a singular episode. It just really depends on like what services the story the best. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like right right now, we're just trying to kind of learn learn as much as we can and and then figure it out. So, um, but it, it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's there's. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was. 
Oh, there's just there's just a lot of. Um, I mean, it's it's. I think fascinating for both myself and John because there just seems to be uh, so many layers to this, and you know, of course, new doors sort of get opened up with each person we speak to, and um, you know, and there's there's various rabbit holes to go down uh, in that regard. So, yeah, um, and you guys, you guys get like a fresh perspective because you're coming at it almost like investigative journalists, sort of. Yeah, trying to trying to understand what happened as opposed to you know reminiscing on what we what we did witness. Um, yeah, but but you know to 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 kind of elaborate on you know what I had said earlier is like I think now that we've done a handful of interviews, you do start to see certain things recurring, and you do see certain patterns, and so that then suggests you know narrative possibilities. Um, right. I, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, like to be candid about our prior project it was like when we started doing Polybius we were initially thinking of it only as a fictional piece and then it only became only became clear to us that like when that was really impossible to realize hey let, like maybe we can actually make um, a, a documentary and and then so those two the the documentary and the fictional sort of merged as a result of that um, and that was sort of interesting, and but I feel like with this, uh, like the fact that we didn't have any preconceptions about it, it, it would be probably detrimental to try to construct a framework and then fit things into that framework versus once you're actually conducting interviews and doing the research, um, that you do start to see things sort of organically present themselves. I think that that just is right. like the more, um, I think that's, you know, it's like going with the stream versus fighting against it essentially, or trying to divert, you know, build, um, you know, try to build a dam or something and divert the stream the way you want it to go. So. Oh yeah. Well, especially cause I mean, this thing has, you know, decades of, of weight light. behind it. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I'm yeah. excited to see what you guys what you guys uh, morph out of this. Yeah, this is... thanks, D David. I think it might be actually worth asking you too, um, uh, and and it's something I definitely want to circle back um, to to Joe about. But are you aware of any women who who have taken an interest in Ong's hat or participated in some way? Um, Ooh, that's and I a ask good this question. just because like all the speakers we're talking to are really. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're male. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, you're going to have a different POV, but also just for the, for the sake of the experience, it's just nice to have, you know, women's different voices, voices. as well. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I believe me, I work in, uh, I, yeah, I work at university level communications. So I, I hear you. Um, the, there are, I can't name any offhand. Um, it's okay. weird because like the, so it kind of spun off, you know, like the folks who stayed in touch and in, in, in touch with it, like are active in the media in some sense for the most part or professionals in some area that abuts that. Um, so yeah, there definitely are. I just haven't stayed in touch with a lot of folks. Um, Crap. I know that Joe even, I think Joe even works with someone. So ask Joe and I think yeah, he should okay, be able cool. to. Yeah. yeah. 
and, and you don't have any uh, any other recommendations for people we should reach out to or, or anything like that that you think would be valuable to the story. James James Curcio, but you guys already have him. Yep, we're going to speak to him. I think next week. Um, so. uh, somebody who might be interesting is Ferdinando Bushima. I have not heard that name before. Um, he really loved and loves Joe's work, and he's uh, like a master level performance magician. Um, performed at the Magic okay. Castle and stuff like that. And he's taken um, Joe's ARG frameworks to a whole nother level in um, <laughs> like hyper advanced experience design using his knowledge as a performance magician. So he would be an interesting person to talk to um, a, that would give a, a very different, uh, a totally different perspective on this stuff. Cool. Appreciate the recommend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no um, problem. All right. Well, uh, we, we will be in touch. Great. Take care, all guys. Right. Thank Thanks you. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye.